Hi, I'm Ben Smith, the editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed, and this is Newsfeed, where I talk to people at the intersection of tech, politics, and media. My guest today is Charlie Warzel, a old-time media reporter slash tech reporter who's been sucked into politics quite a bit lately. I've always been drawn to, like, evil, essentially. And this is, like, a very real... This is where evil kind of jumps out from the shadows in some, in some way. He's been at BuzzFeed since 2013. And, and, and the beat he covers now is something that we refer to as the upside down, if you've seen Stranger Things. It's the, the birth of a new alternative media that's, that, that is shaping itself in a kind of strange mirror image of, of the legacy media. When you get trolled by somebody in a, you know, a, a Pepe frog wearing a MAGA hat or something, and they say awful things about you, you just kind of say, like, that's maybe not a real person. Uh, or, you know, that's, that person's so outside of the realm of reality, whatever. And I think after the election, it was sort of like the thing that changed in my head was like, we have to take this really seriously. Not as even a problem, but as like the people who are good at this need to be taken very seriously. I am here with uh, with Charlie Warzel, a senior writer at BuzzFeed, who once upon a time was a was a media reporter That's covering right. the uh, the old media and new media, I guess for for a media publication Adweek. Covering BuzzFeed. Covering BuzzFeed. Yeah. I have a habit of hiring reporters who have covered BuzzFeed, but not the ones and this is sort of a dangerous thing to say, I guess, but not the ones who are too nice to us and actually I don't know if you remember this, Charlie, when I, when I when I hired Charlie, we were very far along in the hiring process, and at some point I said, you know, my one concern is that you keep writing these nice things about us, and I'm afraid that you don't know how to throw a punch. And then, like, the next day, you wrote some hit piece on me, and so we hired you. Yeah, it wasn't exactly a hit piece, but it was definitely shaded by the fact that you told me I was too nice, and you thought I couldn't hack it in some way. So, um, yeah, it was like it was off like native advertising back when people actually, like, really truly cared about that and thought that it was going to destroy journalism. And then now I work here, so yeah, it worked sorry. out, I guess. And now you have to recite company talking points. It's great. But yeah, but I guess I was thinking, because now you cover you cover this kind of strange new emerging world of the, the not just pro-Trump media, but of alter, a real alternative media in a certain way that we'll get to in a minute. But I guess I wonder back then... I mean, you had worked in TV. Were you even were you aware of this stuff? Were you paying attention to the sort of green shoots and leaves growing around the edges of of, I, of mainstream media in some sense? I mean, I think it was that I it's it was it's sort of always been based off of what I th- thought is interesting and maybe can like help me. Like it's always sort of like a selfish interest in the sense of like I was seeing what people were doing on Twitter and I was seeing lots of young people coming up on Twitter or like you know, just, just getting in the mix, like nobodies who just were smart and interesting and like writing through blogs or whatever. And I was like, I sort of missed blogs. Like I, if I had started a yeah, blog myself, you would have been a great blogger. And if I would have started a blog myself, you know, like in 2009, people like people weren't like hungry for it. And, and so I saw what was like happening on Twitter and I was really, um, I was like, I want to do that. I can do that. I know I can do that. This is really fascinating and I think it's consequential because I'm watching people my age or peers like you know getting jobs and or you know like harassing politicians or whatever it is and I and so like that sort of showed me that you know you could be sort of this insurgent nobody and inject yourself in just like just by signing up and I think like I think Twitter has really sort of always been the kernel of like 
everything it's it's sort of like the the patient zero for caring about like new form, weird forms of media and I have, everything is is has grown out of that and I can just sort of see the potential but it's always been a little bit like selfish like how can I get in on this or like or how I did something and it, it didn't end up working the right way or, you know, my life is made worse by this phone and the, all these feeds and how, and then I, everything just sort of like funnels out from that, I think. Yeah, I think, you know, there's, right, I think there's this conventional wisdom almost of to roll your eyes at Twitter and say like, ah, I never tweet, but actually love it or hate it, it is really like the beating heart of this media ecosystem. Yeah, I think there's like the, when Twitter turned 10 last year, there was all these people, you know, saying like all the great and bad things about it. And like a couple of people, I think like DeRay McKesson said, like, you know, I wouldn't be anything of who I am right now without it. And that's sort of like cheesy, but like I wouldn't have a job without it, I don't think. Like I think I would be working in TV or like at like a, like a, you know, kind of a shitty unknown Washington like like startup blog. Yeah, no, it's funny because I come from like the the era before that of the internet, and I'm slightly nostalgic for that blo- the moment when blogs were Twitter, and and actually like you know we were no longer the, like the sort of gatekeepers in the way that real gatekeepers had been gatekeepers, but you had like a little bit of gatekeeping power when you were blogging, and you did get to decide what you know to some degree what what you thought was important and what wasn't, and to aggregate people and share their work and do your own reporting. Um, and and Twitter fully leveled that playing field. And really, right around the time you're talking about, I could feel the energy, like 2009, 2010, yeah. just flowing away from my blog to Twitter and kind of lost interest in feeding this beast of the blog and, and moved over to participating in, in, the, in the Twitter conversation. And then I think you, you came to BuzzFeed as, as a tech reporter. And I think for us, like one of the things, I mean, I think we, we very, we never had a media beat exactly. And because and, it just, it felt by, by the time, you know, I started BuzzFeed in 2012. It really felt that media had been become the tail being wagged by the dog mm-hmm. that was tech and stories that stories that felt like media stories. I remember one that, that the Washington Post Social Reader was going down the tubes. I don't know if you remember the Social Reader. It was this, it was this yeah. ill-begotten feature that showed you that your elderly relatives mm-hmm. were reading like sketchy, kind of slightly porny stories mm-hmm. that you didn't want to know they were reading because it was auto-sharing everything they clicked on. And so, and, and so, like the Washington Post social reader died. And somebody, wrote, a media reporter, wrote the story that the Washington Post social reader was dead, and this said something about the Washington Post. And John mm-hmm. Herman, who who then worked at BuzzFeed, went and looked at the app Annie data and wrote a story saying, "Oh, Facebook killed all the social readers." Yeah. This was, you know, this is a story where Facebook sneezes and the media companies get a cold. And and to cover things from the perspective of the media companies, so often you're you it's, you misinterpret what's happening. And so we always had our kind of media junkies on the tech desk, which is where you live now. But at some point, I guess it really was last year. You really you started going down a rabbit hole toward right. coverage of a, 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 this rising alternative, largely pro-Trump media. And I guess I'm interested in where you like when you started getting obsessed with that. I think I, I first noticed it. I want to say I went into an old Slack conversation with Ryan Broderick, one of the reporters here, and uh, in 2015, we were kind of like weirdly talking about the contours of this with like Reddit and like um, like the the men's rights stuff and sort of like I didn't really pay attention to Gamergate that much. That was something that that uh, my our colleague Joe Bernstein really sort of was on before anyone else. But I think that was the first sort of like like really disgusting outgrowth, and I sort of saw it from afar. But then when I started being interested in like Reddit's general power and and of 
of distribution and 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 how uh, and and just like the the tightness of those communities and how they're almost like impossible to kill. When I started really looking into that, and then Reddit started imploding in 2015, it was sort of um, I was just kind of amazed that this this stuff is allowed not allowed to exist, but that it exists and that it's it's sort of unkillable and it always just moves from another place and and, and just and and so these are ideas that you feel like are basically beyond the pale in part right like ideas about about women's role in the world about um i think it's and 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 about harassment on the internet and what's allowed right yeah i mean i think it's just like it's like i've always been drawn to like evil essentially and this is like a very real this is where evil kind of jumps out from the shadows in some, in some way. And and I think that it's it's really like places like like Reddit or 4chan or whatever. Like it's it's a culture that sort of celebrates it as like it's evil as a counterculture kind of and it celebrates that and I think that that's And sometimes with a kind of ironic wink. Sure always almost like nearly always. And it's and then you know you start just the when you start looking at it then you see how it's like laced in this sort of like really bastardized con- conception of free speech but also at the same time like there is this idea of you know you build these platforms what do you do with them um and you know, where do you draw these lines and then peeling back further it's like well what did the platforms consider this and then they didn't why do you say it's a bastardized conception of free speech because i just think that I just don't think I think it's maybe not bastardized, maybe simplified, but I think I think that it's not you know it's not the same thing as like threatening people in in a certain way or doxing people in a certain way is not really like it's not like totally protected speech, and I don't think that people understand that like you know whether it's right or wrong, Twitter is not like Twitter doesn't have to allow you right, to, to put. Photoshop people in into gas chambers like that's not it's not like it's right. not your right as Twitter.com like there's no declaration of independence of right there's Twitter the, right and it, which <laughs> I you know which in rather. some ways I think is pretty is in some ways kind of scary and troubling also that these platforms can censor speech but at the same time right the perception that you have a right a just right that you have a right to harass and threaten people at all is actually in question and complicated in the real world. If you come up to somebody and scream thre- threats at them, totally, they might call the police on you. But then the notion that there's a unlimited right to do it anonymously on platforms that are privately owned, obviously, is nonsense. I mean, it's interesting looking back at the the great Reddit wars of 2015. <laughs> a lot of these cultures obviously were kind of born on on subreddits. Um, mm-hmm. Do you feel like the so there was this sh- spotlight shined on Reddit and people saying, like, wow, there's really like, horrific, you know, discussions of, I think, in a way, the first one of these was this expose of this subreddit that was, and maybe I'm misremembering this, but Adrian Chen's piece on the subreddit that was devoted to, like, kind of yeah pictures of young women without their consent. Yeah, it was circulate. like photo bucket plunder or something where they, yeah. like, stole pictures off of... Yeah, when and, when people would just post all their pictures like yep. whole hog to these sites. Do you think that? And then and there was sort of I think over a year or two a level of people saying, "Wow, like Reddit, which lots of us love, and the front page is fascinating, and the subreddit that you're obsessed with is great and totally, and and you don't mm-hmm. realize the that there are these expanses and these places where people are having conversations that are that are pretty horrific, particularly around sex and violence." Um, 
the that that there was a spotlight on it. Do you think that kind of did that disperse those? I mean, do you think this would have just stayed inside Reddit had the media not turned to Reddit and said, "God, this is horrific. What are you doing?" And Reddit then shut a bunch of it down. It feels like that kind of coincided with a lot of those voices finding other homes and particularly moving over to Twitter. Or am I like, is that not? I a real think scenario? I, I, I don't know. I, 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 I want to believe parts of that, but I also think that the more important factor is just like the broader cultural movement of the internet. And I think I think the way that I look at it is and the reason why Twitter now is the battleground for it is because, you know, like organizations that are very sort of progressive, Black Lives Matter things like that are like Twitter is a is a real battleground for for them. Is a real place where they, you know, can get that exposure. And I think that like that's the, the other side feels that you know the the men's rights yeah. part of the internet feel it's all a really a reaction to that other part. Right and for the so, rise of the left on Twitter is what kind of provoked the the rise of this new online right. In yeah, because there's no better way to get involved, like to get in front of you know people like us and reporters, and, journalists like, and politicians. And it's yeah. just the way to like to put yourself in to this like into the ticker on the bottom of CNN or whatever. And and so I think that it has so much more to do with that. Like I think these things were like burbling on reddit in these communities but i don't think that i don't think that that sort of like anyone was like check it out like our fat people hate is in the is in the news like we can be worse too and do this i think it's more just like this is a cultural battle for what the internet should be and we want it to be you know the place where you know where men aren't losing any ground essentially and you think it was a site in a sense a fight for the soul of the internet rather than for the soul of the culture yeah I think so. I mean, it, that's my biased like opinion of of, of spending yeah. a lot of time on the internet. But I think when you look at like I've talked with with some of our colleagues about you know how like m- trying to trace this back and like some of it kind of all starts out of like the a lot of like the re- atheism discussions on places like Reddit and and 4chan and sort of that like contrarian view on whatever college dorm room yeah and it sort of like spawns into that discussions move into like yeah well what about like men in our place and like you know feeling bad about you know some of these like strong feminist ideas that you know encroach on their freedoms or make them feel bad about themselves and then it becomes it just sort of like grows into like these it just splinters off into these different factions you have the donald Right, and it, it flares up first in, in kind of the last redoubt of that, which is gaming. Yeah, yeah, And, and when sort of there starts to be feminist criticism of gaming, this sort of is where, in a way, the real explosion yeah, and that, happens. Yeah, that's why I think Gamergate. It's a long way from there to the Donald. And, and where did you see this starting to flow into what is now the White House briefing room? Yeah. the I think that the trolling got, like, people kind of gave up on it. A little like I think so I focused in the middle of last year on after like the Leslie Jones stuff like kind of went on a turn Twitter harassment into my beat and I think that the reason that that was so fascinating to me is that like the internet the the people who owned these platforms during this really consequential stretch of like basically that when Donald Trump came down the escalator in Trump Tower to announce to you know basically election day like kind of just like put their hands up in the air and 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 just like allowed whatever this was to be what it was going to be. And I think that like you saw 
at this really important juncture, like no one was really doing much about the trolls, you know, like no one was, it was just sort of like, this is a, an outgrowth of what these social platforms are now. And probably, you know, the same thing with fake news on Facebook, even though we weren't really, it wasn't in our I think in a way those are the two big media stories of the election, the, the, the Facebook's vast distribution of really deliberately bad faith lies and Twitter's decision to not, and, and this isn't like we're, talking, we're not talking here about conservative ideology, support no. for Donald Trump, or the MAGA hashtag. We're talking about really concerted harassment campaigns aimed at individuals. Yeah, and in like you can say whether that there's a lot of sort of back and forth about how much did that influence anything? You know, what on the list of factors of you know why the election went the way it did? Where where is this on it? And like I don't really know, but I think what drew me to it is this idea that these platforms just sort of like let it all happen and sort of we're like this this is it was kind of like this is what we built and uh like let's highlight the good parts you know let's do a moments tab to aggregate the best parts of it of twitter and leave you know this sort of you know let the underbelly do what it does and i think that nobody took any of it really that seriously you know like certain organizations were really up in arms about you know anti-semitic trolling of journalists and harassment but then I think the election happened, and, and what it did for me was that next day I thought about all this, like when when you get trolled by somebody in a you know a, a Pepe frog wearing a MAGA hat or something, and they say awful things about you, you just kind of say like that's maybe not a real person, uh, or you know that's that person's so outside of the realm of reality, whatever. And I think after the election, it was sort of like the thing that changed in my head was like we have to take this really seriously, not as even a problem, but as like the people who are good at this need to be taken very seriously. So who's good at this? Who Who is the first, do you think, kind of entrepreneur slash media figure to really get this and take advantage of it and channel it? I don't, I don't know about the first. Or who are the ones that people ought to be reading about? I mean, I think what you see... Now, I've spent a lot of time recently talking to to Mike Cernovich. So tell us about Mike Cernovich. What's, sure. what's his... So how, Mike, did, how did he get into this stuff? He really, he really started a lot um, or kind of came to prominence in... He's sort of a men's rights-y guy. He, I think at one point, said, you know, like, date rape doesn't really... It's not like if, if you... If you try to get to the core of what the phrase date rape means it's not a you know it's not something that actually exists because it's a rape it's a physical thing anyway like he's that one of those sorts of people sort of hashing out the dorm room logic thing um and he sort of got big in uh gamergate being really like he was uh active in fighting with uh, then gawkers sam biddle um about you know over these rights of gamers and uh, quality journalism. Ethics and gaming journalism, I believe, was the term. And so he kind of got some prominence there, but he was like a really aggressive kind of troll. And then he sort of found, in 2015 or what it found the Trump umbrella and sort of pivoted his brand a little in that way. And then he became someone who was really um, instrumental in kicking up dust on Hillary Clinton's health. 
like he's the one I believe who started the Hillary's Health hashtag and sort of the idea that like is that Secret Service agent who's holding this you know pen is that like an EpiPen for her and in a way these ideas kind of got started and in a way like tested out on Twitter and parts of Reddit and then when they, if they kind of worked and hit Donald Trump would start talking about them in public right I, I read something recently I mean you can say the same for um, feel the burn the Bernie uh, slogan came from bernie subreddit like they saw it there and they picked it up and yep. they admit that but the donald which is the big trump subreddit they would like campaign staffers have admitted to we we watched it we watched for things that were like that went played really big and then we tried to see a way that we could you know fit it into the yeah, you can upvote it all the way into donald trump's own mouth essentially yeah so he was he was instrumental in that and he was you know when i first sort of came upon him he was he was like a pretty like unlikable figure, like just brash and just sort of like he see the way he talked was just very aggressive and and he still does a little bit, but ever since the election and starting to like when I talk to him, he will even say like I'm trolling you know forty percent less he wants to move his brand, and all these people are really on this in this pro trump universe are really so much so more so than mainstream journalists aware of their own personal brand. And they're never like, you know, you hear like a Washington Post reporter or someone say like, we did this, this story we published. It's always this story I published, this thing I did, my Periscope, um, my tweets. But anyway, he's he's like, I think what's interesting is he's pivoted a little bit and sort of said like, I'm going to be the guy that talks about pedophiles, but not Pizzagate. And I'm going to be like... He's still in this universe, but he's, like, the most palatable. Like, 60 Minutes was never going to have on, um, like, this this troll, Ricky, this faceless troll Ricky Vaughn or someone like that, you know. And, like, they probably wouldn't have, you know, even some of the InfoWars people on because they're, like, really in-your-face aggressive. Like, their only goal is to shout their message at you. I, I mean, how much? I mean, I think that the sort of the more kind of alarmist view of this is that there's the sort of creation of an alternative reality where for some set of their audience that you can report you you will be able to tell people like really provably false things for their entire lives and build a great business on just on that yeah i kind of think we're we're like fucked in that realm like i i I really don't i i don't know how you how you go out go out of it i think um it's I, i think a lot about you know what would happen I spent a lot of time thinking about Alex Jones and I, a lot of time and I've been following and like so there's the, the Pizzagate people who you know believe this thing. And, Let's and, talk a little about Pizzagate because sure. I'm, I'm fascinated by this and people probably know the basic outline of the story which is that there was a bizarre lie spread on Reddit and Twitter that 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 among Hillary's emails were coded references to a pedophile ring right out of a Washington DC pizza place and this led eventually a guy to show up with a gun looking for looking for children in this pizza place. Yeah, that was very succinct um, because it's just such a fucking rat's nest. But it's, I guess here's the thing that kind of surprised me. Like, guy went in the gun, didn't find, like, this is still going? Yeah, not only is this, there was a rally in Washington and probably, you know, probably 40, 30 people showed up. But, you know, the day before that, Alex Jones, who sort of initially, you know, in his conspiratorial pro-vigilante investigation way, you know, said this looks weird and you need to go out there and finally, you know, <laughs> figure it out for yourself. 
he had, for whatever reason, most likely very legal reasons, on Friday denounced it and issued a completely unprecedented for him apology that was clearly written by a lawyer, you know, to the camera, like, stop this. And people at this rally were asked about that, and they were completely not detracted. They were like, no, no, this just means, this just means that it's real. Like, the feds got to him. And now some of these, some of these stories, I think Hillary's health is one, the people pushing them kind of like the fight but aren't necessarily totally persuaded of the facts and are, it's politics, it's trolling, it's happening in a in this kind of world of bullshit cut and thrust on Twitter. Now, when you wrote a Pizzagate, it's it's different, right? Like there are a lot of it seems to me there are a lot of people out there who think that they are really on the side of the, who are trying to save children. Yeah, I mean that's true. Yeah, that's the problem. I think especially like you when you look at fake news or or whatever it is, there's a certain element of people that view it as just this kind of disingenuous sort of, you know, like I don't care about the truth or reality. It's not that important to me. But I think for what people overlook is that most of these people, you know, are are just trying to do the right thing, trying to be, you know, consumers of of news and information like the 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 Pizzagate shooter seems really seemed really sincere you know uh in in, right, in right. wanting he, to be a helpful person he was in earnest he was not a troll he was yeah. trying to save children and i think i think that that's the, that that this is a thing that gets lost in the conversation about you know about the trolling is sort of like the the collateral damage is just like millions of people who are just trying to like find their way in the world and just come up with all these different weird Facebook pages, you know, with totally factually inaccurate information. And the people publishing those pages are mostly cynics who are doing it, for, you know, for a few bucks or for to advance a political cause and who know it's false. I'd love to end on Alex Jones. Do you think, is he a cynic? Because Al, he is in a way the, the grandfather of all this, came up in Austin on the left, really, on the anti-Bush left in a certain way, always in the conspiracy, sort of conspiracy world. Yeah. But... And has been, you know, saying crazy things about NAFTA and and, and government cover-ups right. and globalist plots, you know, back before it was cool. And what is he? That's the that's the the biggest question, right? So I think I think there's I think he's actually a really great way to explain all of this, which is that I think he's someone who started out with very real, understandable politically affiliated ideas about the world. And and those are sort of, you know, generally that the that globalism is bad, that, you know, decisions get made in shadowy back rooms that, you know, are made in bad faith about trying to control people. And that there's lots of surveillance, you know, those sorts of yeah. things that like right now, some of which are proven to be true. Yeah. And, he, and also, you know, I think he saw the sort of Bush family as kind of nepotism and a conspiracy a bit. He also, I mean, I remember writing years ago about a poll that said, this was during the Bush years, that like half of Democrats thought that Bush had advanced knowledge of 9-11. Like these kind of, those kind of conspiracy theories are, are pretty deep in American life. Right. And, and they're almost, you know, depending on how crazy, like they're, it's understandable to question your government. It's un- these things are sort of like all understandable premises. You can get there without too many jumps. And then he sort of, you know, got entrenched. And I think, I think that the 9-11 truth or stuff, you know, I think some of that is like you throw a lot of shit at the wall, see what sticks. This really stuck. Um, but then I think I think like the hinge point is about like 2012 or so, like Obama gets his second term. And I think that that's when this sort of like culture war on the Internet 
kind of like really starts to ignite like just you know a year or two pre-gamergate like really like things like twitter like and facebook really coming into their own um and i think that that really changed a lot of the uh the the, the tone in the country got just sort of darker in this way and really sort of like i think alex got a lot of fame for what he did and i think it's sort of like taking the birther thing that trump did down you know, like turning it up to 11. Um, and I think he started to see that, you know, his reach was getting bigger and bigger. And he, you ha- kind of have to intensify. Like as, as the internet gives you more influence and power, like you kind of have to ratchet it up. And then he's always had this store, but he started selling supplements in like around 2013. And sort of like Infowars becomes then like this content marketing branch uh, for you know, like f- fear supplements. So should we, should we get into that business? I think yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, what's your favorite Alex lab? Jones supplement? It's called Caveman, uh, and Caveman is made with like bone marrow, and it's supposed to your get eyes you, are like twinkling. It's right supposed now. to get you back to yeah. I mean, I, I I'm I'm in too deep on this, but to anyway to to be sort of wrap it up in my my feeling about this is that the internet kind of supercharged everything. And a lot of these people, Jones included, I feel like, had to respond to the moment or get left behind. And responding to the moment meant, you know, going more and more intense, more and more entertainment value, shock and outrage, pushing whatever, seeing whatever sticks. Well, thank you. Thank you for subjecting yourself to this, Charlie. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Newsfeed is produced by Eleanor Kagan, Meg Kramer, and Meredith Kennedy. 